Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. So my dad was Vincent Giganti. He was the head of the Genovese crime family, also the head of what they would call the commission, which means that they would have to go to my dad to ask permission to do something. If they wanted to put a hit out on somebody, if they wanted to do business somewhere, they had to come and ask him permission to do that. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. And today I am here with Rita Gigante. Rita grew up in a world swirling with secrets, lies, and multiple sins. Her father, notorious mafia boss Vincent the Chin Gigante, was the leader of the Genovese crime clan and the head of all five New York crime families for decades. But until she was 16, she was kept in the dark about his underworld activities. She unknowingly hung out at mob headquarters and witnessed her dad's whispered meetings around the dinner table, but only knew what she was told by her mother and her siblings about his odd behavior. Dad's sick. Keep your mouth shut. Don't talk about the family. Living with the family secret, and other shocking betrayals she was to uncover, then instructed to conceal, plunged Rita into emotional and physical turmoil for years. Then there was the blockbuster secret she herself kept hidden away. As the youngest girl in an old-fashioned, devout Catholic family, how could she confess to the unforgiving godfather that she was a lesbian? They were all going to hell, she figured, unless she could find a way to embrace the truth and find redemption. Today, Rita Gigante is a gifted and sought-after intuitive psychic medium and healer. She uses the knowledge acquired through life experiences and studying with renowned teachers such as Eamon Downey and Ginny Johnson. Rita also uses her skills to be a prolific author, speaker, and teacher. What a story. I mean, really, what a story. It is, I mean, the daughter of a mob boss who ran all five New York crime families for decades. And she didn't know until she was 16 years old. So wild. It's really the story of a girl who grew up in trauma and how she dealt with it and that trauma, how it translated into beautiful recovery and gifts that she would embrace later on. But it is absolutely incredible. But of course, There is something so fascinating about this world that she lived in and many of the rules that came along with that. If you want more information and more details, definitely check out her book. We have it linked in the show notes. Without further ado, I give you Rita Gigante. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my God, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
This is really exciting. I saw your I saw your interview on Soft White Underbelly and wanted to I know that there was a ton of stuff that you guys got to, but also a ton of stuff that was left out of that that version of your life. And there were some pieces I really wanted to dig into. So before we get started, just I'm going to ask you to just start with your background and I'm going to sort of kick off. And then at certain points, I'll, I'll jump in and ask questions. But for the listeners who don't know your background, will you just tell us about what your life was like growing up? Absolutely. So I grew up in a dichotomy of a world. You know, there was a lot of darkness, but there was a lot of light as well. I lived on two sides of the George Washington Bridge. So the the New Jersey side and the New York side. I was about six months old when I came out to Jersey and we would travel often back and forth to the city to see my dad. I, of course, I didn't remember anything. He lived with us in, for about a year when we moved out. And then he moved back to the city with my grandmother. So for me, there was a lot of being born an empath, which is somebody who's extremely sensitive that can feel everything in anyone. I could feel from a very young age that something wasn't right. There were secrets. There were things swirling around in the air and having to guess what they were because my mom was feeling depressed or I can feel her energy, you know, her depression. And then my own stuff, I couldn't tell if it was mine, if it was hers, if it was my dad's or my siblings back then in 1968, 69. We didn't talk about empaths and nobody knew what an empath was. So for me, growing up in a world of secrets, lies, depression, anxiety, not knowing who my dad was, until I was about 16, you know, being lied to my whole life. You know, yes, he was sick, but not the way they told me he was sick. So this was for me at the age of five, beginning with anxiety attacks at the age of five, then my first panic attack at the age of seven, I had began to develop OCD by the time I was 10, because I felt like I needed some type of control. I felt so out of control at that point in my life. So I started to make bargains with the spirit world, like if I wear this or if I eat this, I'll be okay, you know, that kind of thing. And so it was not easy dealing with the emotional piece of that. I wasn't in school a lot. I wanted to be home with mom because I wanted to make sure she was okay. I knew it was my job to take care of her. I didn't even know how I knew that. And then at a young age, I was told, take care of your mother. So this became my life job energetically, emotionally, physically sometimes, and took a toll on me. But I want to, you know, I want to say that it wasn't all bad in that childhood. There was a lot of light from my mother's side of the family who were loved to have parties. They would come out, you know, for the summer and hang with us for weeks at a time. And they'd like to play games. So we were always, they were gamblers, you know. So we always were, were with them in the summers. And it was, it broke up the feeling of depression and anxiety and and all that went with that. It was a true dichotomy. Did you have siblings? Yes, I have siblings much older than me. So the one above me is 10 years older. My oldest sister is almost 16 years older than me. It was kind of like a change of life baby. When I was like five years old, three out of the four of them were already gone. By the time I was six, my sister was having her first child. I was her child, quote unquote, until she decided, you know, started to have her own. And then it was like, I missed the emotional piece of her because she was gearing up to have her own children. And my mom so often was not there emotionally because of what she was experiencing. When my sister left, it was very difficult to bear mom's energy alone. I did it, 
but it was not easy. And so the siblings were not helpful in the sense that they were all caught up with my dad and my mom and all of it. So it was not helpful. There was nobody my age. There was nobody to really connect to, you know, other than other kids in the neighborhood that really very, there were some that could not, would not hang out with me or because of my situation with my dad. And then there was some that of course knew us and loved us and understood it. But I was grateful to have the amount of friends I did growing up. I had some, I had a tough road. I want to say getting myself established in school because I wasn't there often. And then when I was, I wasn't happy. I got picked on a lot when I was young because I would dress a certain way. I, I didn't wear girls' clothes, really. I, I was a tomboy, you know, so I dressed with hats and overalls and sneakers. And so I'd be made fun of. I was big, even though I'm small. I'm 5'1", now 105 pounds. But back then, being that age, I was a big kid. I was heavy set. I was, you know, tall for, for fourth grade. And so I had to assert myself. And I did that with sports. Really saved my life. You know, between being able to ride a bicycle like any other boy and play any type of sport as good as a boy, it kind of set me on the path to building some self-esteem, which is what I needed drastically at that point. So it was my saving grace. Will you tell us about the first time that you realized that something wasn't right in your home, you know, the experience of seeing your dad and seeing violence, it sounded like that was when some of the panic stuff started. Yeah. So the anxiety attack at the age of five started because I witnessed my dad beating a man. And so I was underneath my grandmother's table in New York City. And I just remember the music was on in the background. And I remember hearing footsteps. So I kind of crouched further under the table. And I remember hearing voices, but I couldn't understand really what was going on. And it didn't sound like it was good, you know, and then I heard crack, like, you know, like when you hit somebody in the face and the guy just kind of just right down to the floor and I could, he was facing me, his face was facing me. You know, he was, his head was turned. So I'm seeing the blood started to trickle away from him and like to me. And then I can see my dad just completely like shredding his face with his hand. And the only reason why I know it is because I saw his pinky ring there. And so I knew it was him. And the last thing he did was step on his head and his face and it like above a whisper. He was like, he said, don't ever fucking disrespect me again. And then he said, get him out of here. You know how when you want to scream, but you can't, like you open up your mouth, but nothing comes out. So I thought I was going to scream. So I covered my mouth. I scooted back just a little bit further because the blood started to really like almost pull around my, my feet. And then I started to shake uncontrollably. And like, I don't know how many minutes passed because you know, when you're in that energy, you no idea time. But I heard my mother calling me at that point. She heard me like whimper. And then she came and she realized I was underneath the table and scared the shit out of her, you know, but she was trying to comfort me and say, you know, it's okay. Daddy just got upset. It's like, put it out of your mind. And I did for almost 40 years. But I remember thinking to myself that day, if I'm not good, I'm going to get hurt. And so I was petrified, you know, so I kind of just kept my mouth closed. I would be listening, but I never said a word. I never asked questions. It's almost like I knew not to ask anything. I knew not to do, you know, like ruffle the feathers. That was the first time I experienced complete anxiety attack. Panic attacks started at the age of seven because I would unknowingly, being an empath, go in and out of my mother's energy to help her. 
like when she was depressed or upset. Well, I went in one day and I didn't know, I didn't think I could get out of her energy. It was like I was enmeshed completely and I couldn't feel my own energy. I couldn't feel myself. I don't know how I did it, but I got out. And the minute I got out, I had a panic attack because it was like pure fear. Like what happened to me? Like, it's almost like I was in another dimension that I was back. From that moment on, the panic just kept coming. But then I was getting myself sick because I couldn't speak. You know, I couldn't ask questions. I didn't know what was going on. I knew something was off. Why did we live here and dad lived in the city? Why did he live separately from you guys? He lived separately because when we came out here a year after we came out, my dad gave a donation to the police station. It was 50 bucks. It was a check. My sister went and brought it to the police station and they called it bribery. They arrested my mother and father. Oh, this whole thing happened. And at that point, he knew he had to go back to the city. So that's what he did. He went back and he lived with my grandmother. They arrested your mother? Yeah. Oof. yeah it was crazy. It was crazy. My sister, you know, when I talked to her about it, she goes, it was the craziest thing. She says it was a check for $50, like a donation, like you give to the police or you give to the fire department. You know, that's all it was. It was no big deal. And it became this huge deal. And so he realized, yeah, I think I need to go back to the city. So he would come back and forth. We would go back and forth. That's how it was. So I lived a good part of my life in both places, but I preferred Jersey. There was another piece to that too, which was, and I imagine looking back, probably related to mom's energy and taking on mom's energy, which was that your dad found another Olympia. Yes. So that was before I was born. My siblings were already here. So there was four. He had met her, you know, I don't know how I could have been going on even before my mom and dad were married, but I think it was after. I'm almost positive it was after they were married and she was introduced to him. This is that life and what you did in that life. You had a wife and then you had somebody else on the side. So he was introduced to this woman who they called Mitzi, but her name is Olympia, and had a relationship with her. He did not want children with her. And yet, two years before I was born, he had a daughter. When my mom got pregnant to me, she got pregnant, the woman. We were six months apart, and then his son on that side. And then two years after me, there was another daughter. So I was in the midst of all of this. So my mom's pregnant to me. She has all this anxiety, all this, you know, depression, all this stuff herself that she's experiencing. Of course, I don't know if people know this, but when you're pregnant, it gets, the child knows, it gets transferred. And coming out of the box, I was already anxious and, and nervous. So then I come into the situation and now he has a whole nother family, which none of us know about. Your mom knew, right? Yes. My mom knew about the woman because initially when my dad went to jail the first time back in 1950 something, she was sitting in the courtroom with my mom that day, but across, she got on the elevator with my mom and my mom knew immediately when she got on the elevator who she was. And she tried leaving my dad the first time and he begged her to stay and he promised it would end. And she stayed because she loved him. And it never ended. And so it caused a lot of grief for us, for that family, for my mom, for my dad, for the family that he had in the street. It was to keep those kind of secrets a lifetime, you know? So I was in my 20s when I found out about them. That's a lifetime, you know? Yeah. It's like, yeah. I can't even imagine what the experience was for mom or him. Or I have a lot of empathy and I was able to 
move through that piece and forgive them and understand it from a different perspective. But until I got to that point, it was sometimes it was brutal. As the experience of knowing something isn't normal, but not being able to ask, how is it that you didn't say, mom, what's going on? Or what, why is this like this? Like what would keep someone as someone who hasn't had that experience and is a big loud mouth, I wouldn't know how not to ask the questions. How does that work where a little kid just knows not to ask and then doesn't? Yeah. I think having the experience under the table kind of solidified that for me. It was like, keep your mouth shut, you know? And because everybody was like, I would witness the whispering and the shut the door, like, you know, make sure she doesn't see kind of thing. Or my dad would be at the table with these guys and they would be sending notes back and forth to each other. And the radio would be on and the TV would be on. And, you know, they would, they would only speak above a whisper and they would go to his ear to do it. He'd either write something down or whisper back and then the papers would be ripped up and thrown in the toilet. Like these are things I've witnessed that I, and I, I would say to myself, all right. Like, so I would ask my sister, I would say to her, like, what's daddy do? Or, you know, what's, what's going, but it was daddy sick or daddy this or daddy that, you know, he works in a hack company or he, you know, his heart is sick. And then, then his brain was sick and he was paranoid schizophrenia. That you know, it was a myriad of things, but, you know, at the age of 11, 12, when I'm coming into my own sexuality and I'm realizing like, I'm, not going to be with a man in this life. I'm not going to bear children myself. And, you know, coming from a Catholic Italian, very domineering male energy, this was a clusterfuck for me. This was like, not only am I not going to ask anything, but I'm not going to say anything either. So now I'm holding my own shit in, not able to tell anybody anything I'm feeling, going through the motions of puberty, not being able to tell, even though they know, like, you know, you know your own kid. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when your kid is not, if I'm running around in a baseball cap with, you know, ripped jeans and Adidas sneakers, like, yes, I'm a tomboy, but there's, there were things that were showing them I wasn't going to be with a man in this life. I, I was going to be gay, right? But nobody wanted to see it and nobody can really touch it or want to know about it because in this religion, it was forbidden. Like you were going to hell if this is who you were. There was then I started holding my own secrets, which made me even sicker because now I can't even speak my own truth. So now I'm getting all upper respiratory, everything from, you know, upper respiratory to pneumonia to anything having to do with my throat, my ears, because that's the area of speaking your truth. Sometimes headaches, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, OCD, you name it. I was experiencing it throughout my whole childhood, right up into my mid 20s and probably didn't fully I call myself a recovering whatever, because, you know, you're still going through shit. You, you know, you move through things in bits and pieces as much as you can handle, right? So we're healing a lifetime, but probably in my mid-30s that I'd say I was coming full circle. So I was still experiencing all of those things right up until my mid-30s. And I could still experience panic and anxiety and OCD now, depending on, you know, what's going on in the life and the stress factors. And it's how I coped. I mean, I was looking at the OCD as my friend at that point. You know, as I look back, I'm like, that was my friend. It helped me get through. So I laugh at it now when it happened because I'm like, oh, all right, I'm fucking stressed. Here it is. So, yeah, so that was hard. That was not an easy road. But I realized that about uh, maybe I was 20. 19 or 20, I came to the realization that if I didn't 
help me like no one was going to be able to. Like they they just didn't know how. They loved me. I could feel that they loved me. I could feel that they wanted to help me, but they didn't know how. They were stuck in their own religion. They were stuck in their own way that things should be back in that day, especially if you were Italian Catholic. It was like you got married. This was it. You stayed with the person you were supposed to be with. You know, you didn't kind of ruffle the feathers. You know, you were a woman. So your place was in the kitchen. You were to have children. You were to take care of your mother until she passed. And then you would maybe have a life after that. Maybe. When did you finally find out what your dad did for a living? And did your sibling, did you get a chance to talk to your siblings about it at that time? I found out at 16 because there was a lot of rumors going around and I'm having surmising things myself, but of course never would say. And if anybody ever said anything about the family, I was very, very defensive because it was my family, right? I could say it, but you can't. That kind of thing. Right. So there was a girl spreading rumors and, you know, she was calling me the mafia princess and who my dad was and blah, blah, blah. I knew her. She came, you know, from a different school. And, and so one day I just got her, I lost my shit. It was like, I had had enough of her. I pulled her into the bathroom. She was in the bathroom. I pulled her out of the stall when she walked out. I just grabbed, she didn't have a chance to really say anything. I wrapped my hand around her, her hair. And I just kind of Pulled her face down to the to the sink and I just shattered this whole area, really. She fell to the floor. And I remember getting on my hands and knees and like going after her, you know, with my fist. And all of a sudden that that day underneath the table when I was five clicked in and I couldn't even see what like I, I turned, you know, like I was like, I don't even I'm not here kind of thing. Right. I see myself, but I don't feel myself. It's almost like I was on the outside looking in. And then I remember stepping on her face and saying, I'm done with you. And I walked out of the bathroom and then I started to shake because I knew, but I buried it again. It's like I knew something happened and yet I buried it again. I was young, 16, right? Didn't come up until I started writing my book. And someone told you from that moment? So what happened was after that, I realized like, I gotta, I gotta talk to somebody. So I went, a friend of the family confided it to me, but then she called my mother and told me, and then I went to my sisters and they gave me the spiel of everything. And they explained how it was all, what this was, that he was sick physically, but he wasn't sick mentally. Yeah. So tell us about that part. Tell us who he was and then tell us about that. Yeah. So my dad was Vincent Giganti. He was the head of the Genovese crime family, also the head of what they would call the commission, which means that they would have to go to my dad to ask permission to do something. If they wanted to put a hit out on somebody, if they wanted to do business somewhere, they had to come and ask him permission to do that. From any of the families or just? The heads of the family had to come to him. Oh, the heads of the families had Those to come. Those family, to yes, had to come because he... So he was the, the head of all the families. I found, as you said, the wildest thing of hearing was that your experience growing up was that you guys didn't have a lot of money. But back then we had a nice house, right? Yeah. I think we paid like $67,000 for the house. It was a four bedroom, beautiful home. Now, if you looked at my mother's house, you know, the mansions that they have now are much bigger, but it was a nice size home and it was in a, a good area. Altapan was wealthy, you know, so you were considered well off, but we didn't live like in extremes. You know what I mean? We didn't yes, live in yes. extremes. And he lived in a four room apartment, you know, his whole life. Right. So it wasn't about that. Even when they died, there was you know nothing left when he died. It was not, everybody was on their own at that point. 
So whatever we built up, you know, my business or somebody else's or whatever, that's what we had. There was a tremendous amount of money, but we didn't benefit from that in the end. So he's the head of these families. And so they go, what was the spiel they gave you? When I finally found out, yeah, it was the truth at that point was this is who he is. This is what he does. This is how far his hand reaches. This is how powerful he is, which was a refreshing experience. Like it was like all the pieces of the puzzle snapped. I like I knew everything now. In the next breath, it was terrifying because I knew for sure that I couldn't open up my mouth and tell my said who I was at that point for fear I would get my the shit beat out of me, which at some point I did when I was 19. So and I had an altercation with my brother where that was concerned. And so at that moment, realizing that I was like, okay, I understand completely. Now I felt bad that I hit this girl because. Right. It wasn't a rumor. But I didn't like the fact that she ran around a school talking shit anyway. It was like, just not right. Like, even if I knew something about somebody, we all knew, keep your mouth shut. It was like, you don't judge another person. You know, you don't know what their problems are. That kind of thing. We were always judged. All of us in my family, for whom my dad was for me being gay for whatever it was, we were all being judged some way. And so I grew up with the knowing in myself, like, yeah, I don't judge anybody else because we don't know what goes on in their lives. And when you told your family, your parents at 19, hey, listen, this is who I am. I'm never going to be with a man in this life. What did you think was going to happen and what did happen? I thought I was going to get my ass kicked in that moment. I was terrified. I was sweating and my hands were clammy and cold, and, but I felt the need to do it because I was always sick. And I knew that it had to do with not being able to speak my truth. The reaction I got was the complete opposite, which scared me even more. It was like my father all of a sudden just got really calm after I said it. And he said to me, it's okay. He says, kids your age go through this. You're just going through you know, like a phase. And the way he said it, I knew by his voice and his tone and his mannerisms that I better just cop to that and leave it be. Yeah. So I went back in immediately, left the room, got my bed. I don't think I got up for three days because I was like, fuck. I was just relieving myself of it. And then I got that and I knew I can read things really well because of the way I was raised. So I can read a room really well. Yeah. And I can read energy really well because I'm an empath. So knowing don't open up your mouth after this was like, okay, I went back in the closet till I was 24. And then I just came out to my mom after that. You know, what is interesting about so much of what you went through, one of the stories you tell about how you were, you know, sexually groped by a a crossing guard. And something that's interesting is that, so if your dad is the head of you know, the crime families, right? In some ways you think no one will mess with you. You're totally protected. If someone does mess with you, you're totally protected that they would pay dearly for that. And yet because of the severity of what your dad would do or what Mm -hmm. the belief that your dad would do was you were not protected that way or your truth was kept in. Squashed. Yeah. Squashed. Right. And so I thought that was really interesting. Like I would have thought that, you know, that anybody who touched the mob boss's daughter would, that was it. But really there was a lot of thought that had to go into with everyone, your mother included, into how this power was unleashed. And that usually wasn't done by the father. It was done by the women in the family, it seemed like. Yeah. So 
it's interesting. When I think back to that time, I think to myself, I was shut down. Like I, I told my mother what happened and she was petrified. You can see it. We can't tell your dad because she was more petrified for his soul than she was anything. She knew what he did. She knew what he did for a living. And yet she didn't want to know, right? There was a piece of her that didn't want to know. She also wanted to protect the man because he was old in that way. So she took care of it herself instead. But it would be another glitch on my dad's soul. One more thing to have to go to hell for because they really believed in hell. You know, they believed in that. So a lot of my mom's decisions was based on what her belief system was around her religion. By that belief system, didn't it not matter at that point? Yeah, in her head, it did. Okay. Like if it had to be by her hand, it mattered because then she participated. Okay. That's interesting because then she participated, right? Okay. Because if she didn't know, if he didn't tell her anything, which he did, she was never involved in any of that. Then she didn't know. It was easier to not know. But if she knew, then she participated. And that would have been something she wouldn't be able to handle. What about your siblings? Were they involved? Were they able to make their own way? Yeah. So my sister, my oldest sister was his confidant. The next sister in line, there were two girls first. So the next sister in line, she was a little bit of a rebel without a cause. And so she wanted freedom, but there was never freedom, so to speak. So she had to figure out her own way, her own guidance. And like I said, my mom's family was really good with us in that way and helped us in a lot of ways. And so interesting because my mom had, you know, a brother and, and several sisters, and yet she never even talked to them about that life and about my father. She spoke to no one but my grandmother and my sister, both my sisters. And that's when they got older. Then, you know, my brothers, they were never in the life, I want to say. They were never made men, but they had connections that my father gave them. And now they have legitimate businesses that they run. If they do anything else, I'm not aware of it. So I can't speak to it. But they made their own way. And me, I knew I had to. I knew I had to make my own way, which I'm happy about, actually. Yeah. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, everybody. Ashley here. As many of you know, I got sober at 19 after going to many treatment centers. And years later, when my aunt passed away as a result of her addiction, my father and I and our business partner, Ian Crabb, started a telehealth company in 2010 called Lion Rock Recovery. We started with a PowerPoint and a dream, hoping to help people overcome barriers to treatment like affordability, accessibility, and privacy, which we were able to create in this program that we started. Today, Lion Rock Recovery, our little PowerPoint, treats people all over the world. We have over 200 clinicians, and it's an amazing program. We have an intensive outpatient program that has so many different time tracks to fit into people's schedules and specialties like professionals group, LGBTQIA, trauma, and many, many more. We are able to help people anywhere in the world with any schedule, and all of it can be done privately. This is our dream come true. 
and Lion Rock Recovery is available to any of you who have family members who are struggling or if you're struggling and you need to talk to somebody. Our admissions team is there around the clock for a free phone call, also a live chat on the website. There's so much there that we've worked so hard to bring to you. Please check it out, lionrockrecovery.com, or you can call the 800 number, 800-258-6550. Thank you so much. What is the trauma or how is the trauma different for kids who grow up under a man of such great power? Obviously, there's trauma from the violence and there's secrets and that kind of thing. Those those are all traumatic. But is there a type of trauma that comes from being in that sh- the shadow of such life-encompassing power? Or is there, when you look back, are there types of family systems that you relate to that, you know, are similar, even though they don't quite look the same? Yeah, I think, I mean, people relate to my story all the time, even though their dad wasn't a mobster or the head of a family, they will continually reach out to me and say, I so resonated with your story because I grew up Italian Catholic and that's how it was in my family as well. Masculine energy ruled and the feminine energy did not, and they didn't respect women. And so it wasn't just my dad doing those things, having another family. I mean, how many men do that, right? How many men do violent things? Right, right, right. Right. So they can relate to the story on multiple levels because there's the fact that I'm gay. There's the fact that I had to forgive in order to move forward in the life to overcome the trauma, to go through it and overcome it. So people relate to that aspect of it. It's funny, you know, there are people who idolize that image of my dad and say he was a great man. And he was in many senses. He was brilliant in many ways. And he had a very soft side to him, especially when it came to helping people, especially the elderly, especially kids who didn't have, you know, he would constantly be giving. So he had that way about him. He was extremely charismatic. So when they speak to me, they speak very highly of him. And they love that I've transmuted the the energy from that negative darkness to the light and healing. It gives me such a a great feeling to know that people are connecting on all different levels. Will you talk to us about what your dad did? I love you. You're like, he could have won an Academy Award. Will you talk to us about how he made himself, what he did to try to insulate himself from the FBI and how that ended up backfiring? Yeah, sure. So he didn't speak on a phone for 40 years. You know, never spoke on a phone. He only went in a certain radius, you know, certain block radius. He started with the mental illness early on to kind of like prep the whole thing for him to be of that energy of that world of that sickness. He would check himself in and out of mental institutions every so often. As a ruse. Yeah. Every time he felt someone was getting close, he would, you know, check himself in and we have to go. I always say that that was the hardest piece for me because I understand depression, anxiety, and all of that, right? Going to the third floor of a hospital that has patients that are paranoid, schizophrenic, and bipolar, and all kinds of uh, different mental illnesses, and having to watch that and then watching him and knowing what he's doing. First of all, as an empath walking through there, I was like, the minute I hit his room, I was out like a light. I was sleeping because I couldn't handle the energy. 
that was the hardest piece for me. It's like now you're making a mockery of mental illness of people who are really ill and you're smart as shit. You know, you know what you're doing. I know why he did it, but it didn't help me to understand the other side of it yet till much later. So for me to be able to actually help people with anxiety, panic disorder, and all of that feels really good because it's like understanding that piece of the life was brutal to the people who are really ill and knowing that now being able to help them helps me. He convinced them his diagnosis was schizophrenia or he paid them to. Either or, right? Yeah. There were x-rays that showed shit because he was a boxer, right? So it showed some stuff in the brain. But I'm sure that there were people on his payroll, so to speak, right? But they had their own doctors. And so, you know, some people will say, well, they had their own doctors checking. Well, I mean, anything is possible. You can get to anyone if you wanted to, we'll say, in that life. And yet, in the end, it was the telephone that that got him. I mean, it was the people that put him away. They people that were dying, people that were in witness protection, all of them. He was a dying breed. In that life, he really let, he was, you know, he was a leader by the morals, the codes, the ethics of that, of that lifestyle, right? And he stuck to that. That's who he was. He was a very fair man in that life. But in the end, none of it matters. Tell us about 9-11 and what happened. Yeah, 9-11 came and he, so funny, you know, I just had somebody messaged me recently saying that he was in jail with my dad yeah, and knew him. And he would have lunch with him with this other man. And he remembers the day 9-11 happened. He told me and he goes, if you could have seen your dad's face, he was like, he like turned white. Like he was so petrified that one of us was stuck in the city or got hurt or whatever. He immediately picked up the phone and called my mother and had a full blown conversation like he was normal making sure everybody was okay. That solidified it. It was like, after that, how do you go back to like... They knew he was not. They knew, absolutely. But what they really did in the end, when the 12 years, he got 12 years. So when the 12 years was coming to an end and he was going to get out, they just went to him and said, listen, we're going to go after the family for obstruction of justice if you don't cop to who you really are and what you've really done here. And the minute he heard that, that was it. He told them everything. But he would never, never, ever, yeah. That wasn't going to happen. And so he didn't have to, but he did it. That was my, the opportunity that was given to me in that moment was now I can look how I can forgive him. And that's what I started to do. I saw him as a human being. I saw him as somebody that got caught up in this life. You know, as a young child at 14, he was taken in by this man, you know, who loved him and then put him in a boxing ring and then took him, was his driver. And then he worked his way up, worked his way up. And that's right. They were poor. Never had a chance. And he got caught up with ego. Now he says to me, you know, when he comes and he speaks to me, he says, I never thought it would go that far. I never wanted it to go that far. And I believe him. I get it. Like, I, but like, who would want to destroy their whole life? Nobody in their right mind, right, would want to destroy their own life. Their ego has to be running the show, not their soul. I always said he was in prison. It's just he, didn't, he wasn't behind bars his whole life. Right, right. Exactly. It was always a prison in his head or in his heart or in his body or whatever. Nobody would want to live that way. Tell me about starting to realize... So you talked about empath feeling other people not knowing what that was and the the panic and and just 
all sorts of medical medium whose name I can't remember, but he's written a bunch of books. Anthony Williams. Yes. Yes. Anthony Williams talks about being a young kid and, and hearing like these diagnoses basically. And he talks about this famous scene of him being like four years old at Thanksgiving and telling his grandmother, she has lung cancer and everyone, you know, and she, she goes and gets checked. And, you know, of course he has no idea what he's saying. He just, it just comes to him. Right. And he talks about the burden of that and having no idea what's happening to him and feeling crazy and so on and so forth. Did you have experiences as it like take me from I'm feeling things to I'm starting to have knowings and cognitions and maybe like how did, what was the progression for you? So the feeling was always what spirit tells me is I was born a healer. When you come to heal, you have an empathic energy to do so, so that you can feel people's energies, right? So born a healer, so born an empath, probably at the age of puberty. And really, I remember at the age of like 14 or 15, I started to have these knowings. Like I knew things that I didn't know how I knew them. Like, like someone could walk in a room and I could read their energy and know exactly what was going on with them or know the type of person they were. Or I didn't know, like people would come to me for advice all the time in high school. And I didn't understand why. Like, was it knowing specifics or was it like, man, they're struggling or man, their dad just left or something like how, how, so if I go back, I remember there were specifics of things like okay. their mom maybe isn't well. Right. Okay. 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 Or they can be just a general, that kid is struggling. He's got so much going on with him and his reading isn't, he's not comprehending like that kind of thing, you know? Got it. Got it. Okay. How, why would I know these things, right? It just would come in my head, kind of. I didn't get it. But at that age, like when you're 14, 15, like you're you're trying to like, you know, get into a groove. You know, you're in high school. You try, I don't want to know these things, you know? It was like, give me a wall. Like, too many secrets. <laughs> exactly. Why do I have to know more? Yeah, exactly. So I was just kind of grinding, getting through the day with these knowings. And then how old was I? I was about 24 when I met a shaman. I was introduced to the first person that led me on this path. She was a shaman and she worked on my energy and she explained what the chakras were. And, and she told me about how to work with energy and what an empath was. Now I knew what an empath was. Now I realized what was going on with me. No idea beforehand. So it led to then another healer that got that spirit born into my life, eventually to my mentor who explained to me that, yes, you have these psychic abilities. Yes, you can experience as much or as little as you want. Um, Yes, you came here to heal, and you're also a teacher. How you will teach will depend on how the life moves forward. Now I realized why I had no issues standing up in front of people and speaking. It was like natural to me where people say it's a fate worse than death. For me, it was like, bring it on. Like bring me 2000 people. Let me, let me talk to them. Right. So therein lies the teacher. And then it started to click. I went to massage school. I went to college to be an exercise physiologist. I went to massage school. And I realized when I started to put my hands on somebody, things were happening. I was feeling things. I was seeing things in the body. I was trying to figure out like medical. Some of it was medical and some of it was just energy. It was like blocked. I knew it was blocked in certain areas. So how do I unblock the energy? And as I'm moving through with the people in my life to help me, I'm realizing how I can do it. At the same time, having to understand how an empath on a daily basis has to ground, protect, and keep themselves 
from not taking that energy on. And I'm so used to taking the energy on because I took on everybody's in my family. I mean, it, this was like a natural thing for me. It was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll take that. But it was physically, again, getting to my body. So now having to learn how to separate that was a thing of its own. You know, it was like, oh, okay. So every day I would be grounding myself, protecting myself in a bubble of light, pushing my aura out like 15 feet all the way around me, you know, just to not have anybody's in there. I would go into the supermarket. I would come out like Swiss cheese. It was like, I, it was like, fucking, I, I'd be li- reading people like, and he just had a fight with his wife. He came to the store because he wanted to get out of the house. Or, and now I'm like, all right, I can't. I, I didn't even want to go to the store at that point. Once I got that under control and got better at that, I was able to hone in on my clairvoyant, which is the seeing of things. So I would close my eyes and I'd get flashes or blocks of words would come into my mind, or I would hear either in my mind or I would hear a voice or my voice, you know, somebody telling me something and then the hearing. And sometimes I could even smell and taste depending on who and what is coming in. It's kind of multiple ways I can connect when I'm working with people. And I enjoy it that way because it's happening for me in one shot. I don't differentiate. Like some psychics will ask you, do you want a psychic reading or a medium reading? I'll just say, listen, what comes in, comes in. What's the difference? So a psychic talks about your life, like what's going on in your life, how they can right, help okay, you okay. forward in the life, whereas a medium is talking to the other side, their loved ones, their animals, whoever comes. For me, it just all happens at once. And I just allow it to happen. Is that? Very stressful. Okay. Yes. okay. Very stressful. Until Sounds very spirit, stressful. So spirit said to me, get out of your head, drop into your heart. And just bring what we tell you forward. Don't worry about how it gets. After that, you're done. You're just the vehicle. Don't worry about it after that because it's not yours after that. We're asking you to help them in that moment. You're just a vehicle to help them. You're not healing them. You're not making the changes they are. When they told me that, that's what happened. It was like, okay, so I'm responsible for being a clear channel, but that's it. I'm not responsible for anything else. Right, the outcomes. Right, because... Growing up in my family, I felt I was responsible for everything. My mom, how the alcohol, I was the peacemaker in the family. I had to really differentiate that when I was working with people. I wanted to fix everything. Are you familiar with Winbridge? Yes. One of the things that was interesting for me is I tend to be a bit of a, a skeptic. I grew up in a bunch of different religions and went to Catholic school and very, very skeptical about things. And then so I know a lot of people I really respect and find to be very scientific who were interested in psychic mediums and my mom, who of all people just it didn't seem, you know, I was shocked that she was really into the woman who wrote the science book. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so I, and I read a couple of those and I discovered Winbridge and reached out to a medium with like, change my name, my email, my, used a Google phone number, all these things and did a reading. And it was, it actually, I didn't get it at the time, but later down the line turned out there were a bunch of things. And so my belief in like Winbridge really helped me get over my skepticism for no other reason than it's a mental block. And I was just curious what the rest of the community thinks of that. And if that ever comes up and what you say to people who are like, that sounds crazy. Yeah. So I get skeptics all the time. Right. And it's okay because I've learned like spirit said to me, well, it's not your business what people think of you. And they're right. 
It's not my business. So I just say to people, I'm not here to convince you. I'm here to offer help. Whether you choose to take it or not is completely up to you. But I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. You know, you're going to believe whether I tell you your underwear is pink or not. Like, it's like, you're going to believe, you're going to think I'm I'm nuts or I'm actually telling you the truth. Was it a struggle ever? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay, okay. Absolutely, because I wanted to do right by people. When the first time it happened to me, I was like taken back like, well, what do you mean? I'm not making shit up. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, I like, why would you even question that? But then I think to myself, well, they really don't know me from a hole in the wall. Why wouldn't they question it? Right? Who am I to them? Because I, the way I've grown up, I'm a secret keeper for the world at this point. Like people come to me and tell me their deepest, darkest secrets, and I'm good at keeping them because I learned how to do that. Right. So it served me somehow. But when it comes to spirit, there are no secrets. You know, when I hear your story as a, of an empath, and we we were even talking about you and I were talking about how many people relate to your story for so many reasons. All the you know the trauma you experienced. And I think of all the people I know who describe basically being an empath. And I think of my child who he would watch. Uh, this is the wildest thing I've ever seen. We'd be, he's two years old and would watch a kid run, trip and fall. And the moment the kid's knee hit the ground and scraped, my son would burst into tears watching and someone else getting hurt he would and he would do the cry of physical pain because you know like you can your animals or you know someone you know the the physical pain and i was like oh no (laughs) that's you know and it 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 wasn't a one-time thing i mean he felt and he physically feels hot and cold he fit like he's definitely he's an older soul he's an older soul and he's come no i'm going to tell you because they're telling me so i'm I'm just going to download whatever they're telling he's an older soul i can see that i can see that because he'll say he says things to me that just really mom your face doesn't match how you're feeling like oh boy and i wonder watching and my guess is that my experience as a child with my own stuff was that i felt very deeply but i learned to turn it off And so I have it more than others, but I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, in tune the way you describe. And I think a big piece of that is it was very dangerous and I turned it off. Now I struggle because I, when you said drop into your heart, I can't even tell you how many times, every therapist, every doctor, every sponsor, you know, Ashley, out of your head, into your heart, out of your head, into your heart. It's a very, very difficult thing for me to do. And I wonder how many people who had came into the world as an empath end up using drugs and alcohol to cope with that and end up that being their path because for you it was this was ocd it was the panic attacks do you think that it's a possible path for empaths so people who feel that intensely do you think that they there's a world in which many of them seek out these numbing agents yeah because it's too much it's too much see there are so many things available now so many tools that you can work through the trauma that can help people now that we didn't have back when i was a kid but now there's so much help that my biggest dream is to be able to have a center that can help people like that, you know, come and heal in a way that they never thought that they could before. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our time together. This was amazing. Like, I feel like I'm in the living room, just like hanging out with you, like shooting the breeze. And it was wonderful. So I appreciate your time as well. Thank you. I love your story. Thank you so much. And we will put the links to your book in the show notes so people can reach out to you and find you.
Well, being a mom boss's daughter doesn't sound like it's all that it cracked up to be. In my head, it's, and maybe this is, you know, Sopranos type programming, but I'm like, was there the 1970s version of an American Express black card? Like, what's the, <laughs> you know, like, for God's sake, you know, hopefully you, you, you get some perks, some, some bennies out of this. It did not, it, it sounded like a whole hell of a lot of trauma and secrets and struggle and rumors and people looking at you while you're going through your awkward adolescent years because you're the mob boss. I was like, fuck all that. That sounds yeah. terrible. I know you imagined, I can see what you imagine, which is you in a fur coat with a long stem champagne glass at all times, just kind of walking about the town. And one of those cigarette holders. Things that you want. Yes. Yeah. I want that and that. Yes. And I I fly private. Three of those. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I fly private with my eight dogs, and each of my dogs has their own personal trainer. Keep going. Kinesiologist. We're not not done. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? I want them to be a vet as well. Sure. But basically, I've envisioned a Kardashian probably is Mm. closer to. But then I also think of like the cartel. If you're in a cartel, right, if you're a cartel boss, you do have to kind of lay low in order to not tip off the authorities. Anyway, I don't think I'd be good at any of this. No, I don't think you should be signed up. You can't keep your mouth shut at all. You're a mouth shut. You have a problem with all authority. All authority. A lot of questions. I have a pressure. I have a problem with my own authority. I very much enjoyed Rita. I really, I enjoyed her story. I, you know, of course, her story draws you in because it's this mobster story, and it has all of the the makings of the Hollywood drag you in drama, but. It's not what keeps you. What keeps you is this story of a little girl who doesn't care or know about any of that and is just trying to make her way in the world, has nothing to do with that, didn't involve herself in it, and then finds out when she's 16. I mean, how crazy is that? And then, you know, finds these gifts. And whatever you believe or don't believe, if you're skeptical, regardless of any of that, she's healed herself, helps other people heal, and has found a way in this world in spite of, or maybe because of what her family has gone through. And the trauma that you would go through with that experience with your mom, with the other family, like if we took out all the salacious pieces, right? All the Hollywood headline pieces, a man, violence, secrets, has another family, three children, goes to prison several times and then dies. In, I mean, then that's that's traumatic. And then the sexuality piece, which we didn't dive into as much, but you know what she's done with that and the healing and the forgiveness and her outlook, really beautiful and really exactly what it is that we do and talk about on this show, which is the path to healing is the same for everyone. To me, what's beautiful about the work that she does now is like for her whole life, it was about like, shut up. There's some outward pressure on you. And in in this case, what her life's calling is, what she's doing is like, whatever is coming, she is sending it out into the world. It's the complete opposite of the situation that she found herself in is that like whatever truth she's feeling coming through her, she's sending it out into the world. And like, I literally for myself, like that's part of my story is just my trauma was such that I just shut up. And I literally have a reminder on my phone that goes off like every day that just says, don't shut up. Really? Yeah. 
It's because like, it's so easy. Like it's such a coping mechanism I have. Like it's still a feeling I have when it's like, when I get a little over my skis, when I get a little outside, when I start to say something, I'm like, I'm not sure. Like it's a feeling I have still, which is just, just like, no, just tamp all that stuff down. And so for me, I'm like listening to that and I'm like, yes, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. Like I can't imagine a better fate than to live a life in which you can just say it all. And that's amazing to me. It's interesting you say that because my trauma was also about not being heard and and being quiet. And my reaction to that was to not shut up. Mm -hmm. It was to basically force feed everything everyone had to listen in regardless and with no editing and no anything and no just absolute fire hose of everything. And what's interesting is that my journey has been learning how to manage that and when and how and how to use that. And what's the difference between authenticity and being an asshole and... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like all my work has been, it's interesting how you react to the trauma, right? The trauma of your voice being suppressed. If you go along with it, then later in life, you have to remind yourself and figure out to have your voice heard. If you rebel against it, as I did, you have to learn how to balance that voice. And interesting, one of the things I'm going through right now that I'm really working on is my role as a truth teller, because my role in my life and my world as a truth teller is as a result of this trauma and being a person who's willing to say a lot of things that other people aren't willing to say and being almost incapable feeling at least incapable of not saying them, but also having to learn how much of that, you know how she was talking about creating, like creating the safety for herself first Mm -hmm. and like the grounding for herself first, and then she could come out and interact and give and whatever. And so that's something that I'm learning how to do because like you said, like my reminder is like, is it my place? Is it my place? Is it my place? Like, is it necessary? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Is it useful? Whatever. And so it's just interesting. Like it's, it's exact same thing. It's just a different response to the trauma. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, we were only able to touch on some of the parts of this huge story. You want the full story? Check out her book, The Godfather's Daughter, An Unlikely Story of Love, Healing, and Redemption. Because there was even some parts where she just talks about like how you can possibly forgive somebody in some of these circumstances. And it's a really beautiful thing about forgiveness and, and understanding sometimes what that takes for people. So I encourage everybody to go grab that book, check it out. As always, we are rooting for you this week. We hope that you find your voice or you quiet your voice or whatever you need this week. Maybe you need one or the other. I don't know. Ashley, anything you want to leave the people with this week? Yes. Thank you so much for being a listener. We are asking, please, 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 if you enjoy this podcast, if it has been helpful to you, we really need and appreciate when people go and rate and review us, particularly on Apple Podcasts, but Spotify gives you the option to do that as well. Leaving a written review, even anything that says, I really liked episode number whatever. Very, very helpful to us. That is podcast currency. So please rate and review if you have a moment and we have been helpful to you. We greatly appreciate your feedback. You can also reach us at podcast at lionrock.life and we will respond. We'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. 
LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.